You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I used to watch uh, reruns of the old 1950s television show, uh, The Lone Ranger. Uh, now, I know if you're in your 20s or 30s, you're like, The Lone What? The Lone Ranger, man. I, I totally wanted to be this guy because this guy was cowboy cool, right? He had, he had his white hat and he wore a black mask uh, to disguise his identity and he rode his trusty horse, Silver, and he rode all over the Wild West fighting for law and, and order. And, and one of the things that it said in the intro to the show uh, was, nowhere in the pages of history can you find a greater champion for justice. And at the end of the, uh, every episode, uh, he would catch the bad guys, he would capture the bad guys, and all the good guys would be gathered around to thank him. Uh, and, but, but then, right at the last moment, all of a sudden, he'd be gone. It'd be like, poof. And no one knew where he went. He, he would just disappear. I don't know, if, I suppose he was right off into the sunset or something. But he was just gone. And in every episode, someone would say, who was that masked man? But nobody knew because he didn't stick around to reveal his identity. He just disappeared. It was so cool. Every episode, who was that masked man? Now, if you've ever started reading the Bible from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, you realize very early in the story, you come across some very significant names. Adam and Eve, boom, right out of the gate. You got Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. You got Noah, uh, you got Abraham and Sarah. These are, these are names that everyone knows something about, even those who don't read the Bible. But then you get to Genesis chapter 14, and there's this really brief encounter, uh, this really brief scene where Abraham, who everybody's heard of, encounters this guy Melchizedek, who nobody's heard of. And yet, it's this really important scene. You, you sense when you read it that something significant is happening here, but it only lasts for three verses. And then Melchizedek disappears. It's like, poof, he's gone. And the Old Testament narrative never mentions him again. And you're left thinking, who was that masked man? <laughs> who was? Does anybody know who that guy was? But he just disappears. The story doesn't mention him again. Now, he is mentioned one more time in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 has a prophetic word about the Messiah someday being a priest in the line of Melchizedek. But that's the last time he's mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, when you get to the book of Hebrews near the very end of the Bible, Melchizedek actually gets some pretty significant airtime, doesn't he? In fact, his name is mentioned only ten times in the Bible, but eight of those are in the book of Hebrews, right? But that's the thread. That's the thread of Melchizedek through the scripture. It's a very faint thread. If you were just reading through the Bible, you would almost miss him because the thread only surfaces three times and then it goes back under. Comes up briefly, goes back under. And and you wouldn't even see it. But that's it, those three texts. Genesis 14 is the historical account of him. Psalm 110 is a prophetic word that involves him. And then Hebrews chapter 7 is a theological interpretation of him, which is where we're today. And I think this Hebrews text 
should make us actually, this is the text that should make us pause and say, no, for real, who was that masked man? Like, and why does he matter? Why should we care as Christians who he is? The, the author of Hebrews makes a really huge theological point uh, about him. The author of Hebrews is going to say to us, you know what, you can't actually understand the priesthood of Jesus fully if you don't understand Melchizedek. Remember last week we talked about how Jesus is our great high priest who gives us access to God. He gives us better access than the Israelites had under the old covenant. The people who are reading Hebrews, uh, this letter, uh, have all come to faith out, uh, in Christ out of a Jewish background. That's why it's called the, the, the letter to the Hebrews. And they are experiencing incredible persecution for their new faith in Christ. It's really difficult for them. And they're tempted to go back to their old system. Because in their old system, they had a high priest already who sacrificed for their sins, who, who gave them access to God. And they're like, why don't we just go back to that old system? It'd be a lot easier. But the author of Hebrews says, no, no, don't do that. Don't go back because Jesus is a better high priest. He gives us better access to God. Don't go back. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus. And then the author says, I want to prove to you uh, that Jesus is a better high priest by telling you about this guy, Melchizedek. And they're like, who? Melchizedek what? (laughs) What are we talking about here? If we are going to fully understand Jesus as our high priest, then we've got to understand Melchizedek. And so I want to ask two questions today. Who is Melchizedek? And then why does it matter? Why does he matter to us, okay? First, who is Melchizedek? Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed Abraham. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything he had. He is, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king uh, of peace. There there are a couple things that would catch the attention immediately of the readers, of the original readers of this, this text. First, Melchizedek is identified as a king and a priest. That is unheard of in Israel. The Bible actually never talks about anyone as both a king and a priest except for two people. You know who they are? Melchizedek and Jesus. In Israel, there was a strict division of labor between kings and priests. They weren't supposed to do each other's jobs. There's a a vivid scene actually in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You remember this? King Uzziah is the king, but he arrogantly tries to perform some of the priestly duties. And it does not go well for him. Right? He gets leprosy, breaks all, he, all, all over him, and, and he dies in disgrace. And it's like God is saying to Isaiah, hey man, stay in your lane, right? You are the king. You are not the priest. Don't try to be acting like the priest. That, that never happens in Israel. And yet Melchizedek here is called a king and a priest. So the, 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 the hearers of this letter, their ears would perk up just from the very beginning of this chapter. There's another thing, though, that catches their attention, and that, and that is the, the meaning of the name Melchizedek. It means something very significant. Like, if you translate that word Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness or king of justice, right? 
which is a very cool name, right? If you're looking for a name for your kids someday, Melchizedek would be a good one. Melchizedek, king of justice. That'll preach on the playground, right? That'll work. I will say that this week, though, I will warn you, I kind of got a hand cramp writing his name so many times. That's a, that's a mouthful. I started calling him M when I was writing uh, some notes down about him. He's the king of justice, the king of righteousness. But it says also he's the king of the city of Salem, which would become Jerusalem, which has the same root word of shalom. So he is the king of peace, the king of shalom. Who had Israel been waiting for to bring justice and shalom to the earth? Not the Lone Ranger, right? They had been waiting for the king of kings, the righteous king, the prince of peace. So the very name and title of Melchizedek points to the Messiah, points to Jesus. Now, let's look more closely at this historical account uh, of what happened when Abraham met Melchizedek. If you have a Bible, flip over to Genesis 14, in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 14. So you can see this encounter. Genesis 14. Here's what's happening in this chapter. Uh, These four kings have raided the city of Sodom. And um, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living in Sodom and they got carried into captivity. And so Abraham uh, rounded up some men and he went after the kings and he defeated these four kings in battle and he rescued Lot and his family and he brought back all the the goods that he won uh, in this battle. And, And this is what happens next. Look at verse 17, Genesis 14, 17. It says, after Abraham's return... Uh, from the defeat of Cater Laomer, who's one of the kings, and the kings who are with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom is one of the kings that Abraham rescued in the battle, and the king of Sodom comes out to negotiate with Abraham, to divvy up the spoils, to figure out, what do I owe you here, Abraham? But another king comes out, besides the king of Sodom, and he doesn't come out to negotiate. It's King Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham. So Melchizedek doesn't come out to negotiate, does he? He comes out to do what? He he comes out to bless. He brings bread and wine. Every time I read that, it makes my heart jump. I just start smiling. I love that so much. I've probably read through the book of Genesis a hundred times, and every time I'm reading through it, I know it's coming, but for some reason, it always catches me. He brought out bread and wine. Melchizedek served Abraham communion before there was ever such a thing as communion. Isn't that incredible? He, 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 doesn't come to negotiate. He comes with a meal of peace. He comes to refresh Abraham, to, to give him a sign of blessing. Why? Because it says he's the priest of God most high. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient Near East, in Abraham's day, people worshiped a plurality of gods, but they had a hierarchy for their gods. They had kind of a ranking system. So there were lower-tier gods, there were mid-level gods, and there were higher gods. 
It says Melchizedek is the priest of God most high, the most high God, the top God, the number one God, right? Our God. Here's why that's significant to us. Because apparently our God had a priest in place before Abraham even came on the scene. He had a priest in place 600 years before the Levitical priesthood was established under Moses and Aaron. It would be 600 years later after this scene before the Levitical priest came on the scene. But God apparently already had a priest. He had Melchizedek. Now what does this priest do? He brings out bread and wine and then look in verse 19. And he blessed Abraham. And he said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies, Abraham, into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek here blesses Abraham. Now, why does Abraham even need that? Does he even need that? God had already promised to bless Abraham two chapters earlier in chapter 12. Remember what he said? Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Bless, 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 blessing, blessed. God had already blessed Abraham. Why did he need it again? Why did he need a priest to bless him? Here's what I think. I think when Melchizedek comes out to bless Abraham, I think it's the unseen God's way of saying to Abraham, I see you. I see you and you're good and you're gonna be okay. And I'm gonna do everything I promised for you. In that moment, Melchizedek mediates the blessings of God to Abraham because that's what a priest does, right? Melchizedek communicates the blessings of God in a way that he can understand, in a tangible way, that he can see and hear and even taste. So God comes to Abraham in the form of a person with a meal, bread and wine, and he speaks words of blessing. Don't we need that? Don't you need to hear words of blessing? Like we need someone outside of ourselves to speak words of blessing to us. There's such power in that. Isn't there? Why is blessing so powerful? It's because someone outside of us speaks a word of acceptance and affirmation into our life. They speak a word that, has, that paints a picture of a desirable future. It's because someone outside of ourselves tells us you are significant. You matter. God sees you. God blesses you. That's, we need that. We crave blessing, don't we? But the deal is, you can't bless yourself. You can't do it. You need someone outside yourself to bless you. Someone like a priest. Melchizedek mediates the blessings of God to Abraham. It is this beautiful scene. I wish it didn't only last three verses. I just want it to go on and on. Because sometimes I think we don't slow down enough to catch its significance. Right? Which is why I'm glad we have Hebrews. Because the author of Hebrews slows it down just a little bit and tells us what it means. Look back at Hebrews 7. Flip back over to Hebrews 7. He gives a little interpretation of what happened there. Hebrews 7, verse 4. See how great this man was. He's talking about Melchizedek. 
That's, his, that's what he calls him. He's a great man. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So a tenth of the spoils was not a small amount. And he's not just dropping a couple of bucks in the offering box. It's a huge gift. It, it's a tithe of all the spoils in the, that he'd won in this battle with four kings. It's a huge gift. But here's the deal. It's not a gift of obligation. Melchizedek was not even involved in the battle. So Abraham doesn't owe him anything as, as his payment for, for this battle. Uh, it, it's a gift of, it's an act of reverence, really, for the one true God. It, it's an act of worship. Uh, when Abraham gives him a tithe here, he is honoring the priestly office of Melchizedek. He is is acknowledging Melchizedek is a priest and I honor him with this gift. Now look at verse 6. Hebrews 7, verse 6. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, meaning from the the Levites, from the Levitical priests, from Abraham's family. He doesn't descend from them. He received tithes from Abraham and he blessed Abraham who had the promises. Verse seven, it is beyond dispute. In other words, no one is gonna argue with this, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's an incredible statement. What he's saying here is that the person who has the power to give the blessing is greater than the, the person who receives the blessing. And, and, and no one argues with that, but here's why it's, it's so amazing that he says that. Because he is saying Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And that would be a shocking statement for the readers of this letter. Because Abraham was the number one, there was no one more revered, right, in Israel than Abraham. He was the number one, like, super-duper patriarch. He had the promises of God. He was the military hero in Genesis 14. He got the glory. But in his moment of glory, what happened? He got blessed by a non-Israelite king. A non-Israelite priest blessed him. The superior was blessing the inferior. So what that means is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Here's what else it means. It means that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priests. Right? The priests who would come through Aaron and Aaron's sons. Because those guys weren't even born yet when Melchizedek blessed Abraham. They were still in seed form in Abraham's body. Right? So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then it follows that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood that would come from Abraham's descendants. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is Melchizedek is greater than all of Israel's priests. That's huge. It's huge. Who is Melchizedek? He's the king priest who mediated the blessings of God to Abraham because he's greater than Abraham and he's greater than all the priests of Israel. Now, why does that matter? Let's ask this, answer the second question. Why does that matter to us as Christians? Well, in short, it, it matters to us because he helps us understand Jesus, right? It would be easy just to make this a sermon about Melchizedek, but it's not. It's actually a sermon about Jesus, right? Melchizedek's not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. But to understand the priesthood of Jesus, we've got to understand the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, I want you to look at verse 3, and I want you to see something that's really important for us to see about Melchizedek's priesthood. Look at verse 3, Hebrews 7, verse 3. It's this mysterious little verse A lot of ink has been spilled uh, over this verse. 
Let me read it. Hebrews 7, 3. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, does that mean he doesn't have a mom and dad in a family tree? Or does that just mean we don't know who his mom and dad are? Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Does that mean he, didn't, he was, wasn't born and he, and he didn't die? Or does that just mean we don't know when he was born and when he died? But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, is this little verse telling us that Melchizedek was some kind of superhuman? Like, was he some kind of priestly X-Men kind of character who came into the human race to bless the human race with his superpowers, but he wasn't a human? I don't think so. In fact, verse 4 says that he was a man. And most scholars, I read a lot about him this week, most scholars would say he's just a human being, uh, just like us. Uh, This verse actually uh, is meant not to so much talk about his humanity, but to talk about his priesthood, to teach us something very important about Melchizedek's priesthood, uh, and therefore teach us about Jesus' priesthood, right? And it has to do with his genealogy, or his absence of genealogy. Uh, I've been reading uh, the book of Genesis recently in my devotional time. And you know the thing that I noticed in Genesis this time around? That the idea of a genealogy is really important in Genesis. Like whenever a new character is introduced to the story, you always get their genealogy. You know where they're from. You know who their parents are. You know, you know their history. But when Melchizedek comes on the scene in Genesis 14 as this really important high priest, you don't get his genealogy. It's really odd. In this book, Genesis, that cares so much about genealogy, the, one, the, the genealogy of Melchizedek gets left out. So apparently, Melchizedek's priesthood is not based on his genealogy, right? It, meaning his priestly credentials don't come from his family line. That's the polar opposite of the Levitical priesthood. Because in the Levitical priesthood, to be a priest under that system, you had to prove your family line. You had to be from the tribe of Levi, You had to show that your father had been a priest and your grandfather had been a priest and your great-grandfather had been a priest and so on. But Melchizedek doesn't have that genealogy to prove his uh, qualification to be a priesthood. God simply ordained him as priest. So God, again, apparently had a priesthood in place before Abraham even showed up on the scene. And then this verse tells us that that priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood, will last forever forever. I think that's the key word in verse 3. Did you see how verse 3 ends? He continues a priest forever. How do we know that Melchizedek's priesthood continues forever and didn't just die out when he died? Well, we know it because in Psalm 110 verse 4, God himself swears. He swears an oath and he says there's going to be another priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God himself keeps the priesthood of Melchizedek going. He keeps that office open. And he swears, I will put another priest in that office. And it's open and it's going to last forever. But I want you to know that the list of qualified applicants for that office that's, that was being held open, it's a really short list. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a really short list of people that could fill that priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident 
when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. We know he's talking about Jesus. Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, Jesus didn't become a priest based on his genealogy. Based on his ancestry. Based on where he came from. He wasn't even in the tribe of Levi, the, the Levitical tribe. So he's like Melchizedek. His genealogy is not what qualified him. What qualified him? Let me start that verse over because, it, again, these, it all goes together. Verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but what qualified him? The power of an indestructible life. I love that, that phrase, the power of an indestructible life. Jesus, according to this, became a priest based on the power of an indestructible life. How would you know if someone has an indestructible life? Well, you'd have to try to destroy them to see if it's true. We know that on the cross, Jesus was destroyed, right? He was obliterated. You don't come back from that kind of destruction unless you have an indestructible life, right? Unless death can't hold you, Unless the grave can't hold you. What the resurrection of Jesus proves is that he's the one. He's the only one, in fact, who can fill the priestly office of Melchizedek because that priest must live forever. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now we finally get to why all this stuff matters to to you and me. Here's why it matters. It matters because it assures us that we have a forever high priest who mediates the blessings of God to us forever forever and ever and ever. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves, right? We want someone to bless us, but it has to be someone outside us. He's a forever high priest who always mediates the blessings of God to us. Look at verse uh, 23. Hebrews 7, verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So under the old priesthood, they had to keep replacing the priest because they kept dying off. But Jesus holds his office permanently, right? Uh, Meaning it never ends. Well, why does that matter? Verse 25. This is beautiful. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. How do we draw near to God? Well, we draw near to God through Jesus, uh, our our high priest, right? That's how we come near to him. Now, I want to end by by highlighting two of the blessings of God that you see there in verse 25. And I want you to consider how Jesus forever mediates these two blessings to us. And, And the first blessing is immortality, immortality. Jesus has an indestructible life, but he doesn't hoard that indestructibility for himself, does he? He shares that immortality with us. Like when it says in verse 25, look at verse 25, when it says that he is able to save us to the uttermost, that word uttermost has a double meaning. On the one hand, it means he's able to save us fully or comprehensively. 
but it also means he saves us forever or eternally, right? So he saves us in every way possible, but he does it for all time. He, he forgives all of our sins, but he forgives them forever, right? He, he adopts us into his family, but it's a forever family. And the only reason we can experience the blessings of God forever and ever and ever is because we have a forever high priest who is always mediating them to us. It's wonderful. Michael Spiegel says this. He says, even in glory, we will be dependent on the living God for everything. We will never have independent immortality. Don't you know that? Like the very blessing of immortality is mediated to us through our high priest forever, right? That's the first blessing we see in verse 25. The second blessing I want to mention is advocacy. Look at verse 25 again, advocacy. It says there in verse 25 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And that word intercession, is, it has a legal meaning to it. It means, it means to represent someone in court. It means to be their advocate. Now, we've seen these television shows. We've seen cases where someone is on trial for a crime, and they, they're like, I'm going to represent myself. I'm going to be my own counsel. Does that ever go well? It never goes well. Why? Because if you're going to be on trial, you should not go it alone, right? You need representation. And you want the best representation uh, possible. You want the best advocate you can have on your side. Why? Because when you're in court, as your advocate does, so you do, right? When you're in court, the performance of your advocate is, is, is what's going to make or break you, not your performance. You could be falling asleep at the table, picking your nose, doodling on a legal pad, and it doesn't matter because if your advocate is brilliant, his brilliance will be credited to you. If, if your advocate is convincing, then you're going to be convincing. Jesus is our advocate in the court of God's judgment. We'll sing this song in a few moments. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. He's pleading a case, meaning forever and ever and ever he speaks on my behalf. And, and I don't mean he's trying to, con- to, to convince God that, I, that I'm okay or to go easy on me or to go soft on sin. He's not pleading for leniency, right? He's not like, Father, I know, I know Todd's pretty flaky, and I know, I know he blew it again, but he's a good guy. He's a good guy, Father. He's doing his best. He's trying hard. Just give him a chance. Just go, be lenient on him. I have no idea why I'm talking in a southern accent. I know. <laughs> Jesus does not build a case for my acquittal based on my record or my reliability. That would be a pretty flimsy case, wouldn't it? Jesus actually comes into the courtroom with an airtight case. He's our advocate, and he comes in with his airtight case, and he says, Father, yes, Todd is guilty, but I want you to know that I have personally paid the just penalty for his sin with my own blood. There's nothing left for him to pay. There's nothing left for him to prove. 
First John chapter two, we heard it already today. If anyone does sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sin. He is the satisfaction for our sin. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then it's case closed. Case closed. He always lives to make intercession for us as our advocate. And the verdict is always this, justified. Justified. The verdict never changes. Justified. Isn't that great news? That's the good news of the gospel. And it's good news because there are so many courts in life where we're trying to prove ourselves, aren't there? We're trying to justify ourselves. The court of public opinion where we just want to be liked or accepted. The court of our peers where we just want to measure up or keep up. The court of our own self-assessment where we're trying to prove to ourselves that our life matters, that we are significant in some way. The problem with all these different courts is that we sometimes uh, don't hear affirmation in those courts, do we? We hear accusation. We don't often hear commendation in those courts. We hear condemnation in them. But through Christ, our great advocate, we are fully accepted in the only court that actually matters, the courtroom of God, the throne room of God. We look up and see our great high priest who's interceding for us forever. And he's there interceding for us and he doesn't speak words of condemnation to us. He speaks words of blessing to us. He says, I see you, right? You're going to be okay. You're good. And I'm going, to do, I'm going to do everything I promised for you. And then as a sign of those promises, he brings out bread and wine to us. Isn't that wonderful? That he would, that he would mediate the blessings to God, God to us in such a way that we can taste it and see it. That he would give us a meal of peace to refresh us. That he would remind us that, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he would show us through a meal that we have that. That is our great high priest who mediates God's blessing to us. We know that on the night that our high priest was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it after giving thanks for it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he passed it around to his friends and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness uh, of sins. What he was saying was, I'm going to be cursed so that you can be blessed. I'm going to be destroyed, but take heart because I am indestructible. And my resurrection will prove uh, that you have an advocate forever. You have access to the throne room of God forever. And so as you come down and take this meal, as you eat of this blessed meal, the same way Abraham ate it with Melchizedek, Uh, come with confidence. You are accepted by God because of Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.